Beverly Jean Brannan, known as Jean to her friends and family, was born on the 27th of March 1934 in San Diego County, California, to her parents Mercedes Burke and Telford Drannan. Her mother Mercedes and her father Telford had remained in California for a handful of years following Jean's birth before deciding to relocate to Oklahoma City. Jean would ultimately grow up in Oklahoma, remaining there until after graduating from high school. It was while she had been in school that Jean had begun dating one of her classmates, a boy by the name of Grover Hope. Their relationship at the time had been promising, and it had progressed quickly from a high school romance into a long-term partnership with ease. After graduating together from high school, the young couple decided that they wanted to settle down and get married, with Jean taking Grover's last name to become Beverly Jean Hope. And so Jean and Grover moved to Dallas, Texas to start their new life together with the hope that planting their roots in their region would see them having a successful future together. And luckily for them, their dream came true relatively quickly. Grover had managed to scrape together enough money to start up a small contracting business with a business partner. This company, called Chani and Hope Incorporated, focused on heavy mechanical construction, and it quickly became a success in the local community. As a result of all this success, the young couple began to see a notable amount of income landing in their bank accounts. This was a success that the couple would see carry on into their later years, leading up to 1970. Now, in that year, 1970, Jean and Grover, who had been married for a little over 17 years by that point, had been living in what some of those who knew them refer to as their, quote, dream house. The house had been custom-built from the ground up for their family, which had set them back a tidy $100,000 at the time. This equates to about $929,000, or just over 750,000 Great British Pounds in today's money, so it wasn't a cheap affair. The couple's small business had exploded into becoming a local household name, and it had been a financial blessing to the Hope family. Tragically though, with all this success came deep lows to go with their highs. In 1954 and in 1963, Jean would become pregnant and would sadly lose both of her children. It's unclear whether this had been due to miscarriages, stillbirth or other medical issues, but what we do know is that neither of the boys would have survived long enough to have seen their first birthday. Fortunately, despite these two losses, the young couple Grover and Jean would go on to bring three healthy children into the world throughout their marriage, with their eldest turning 10 in the year 1970. Through these dark times, Jean was well supported by her local community. She had many friends within her community and within her church that she frequented. Jean was particularly close with one of her neighbours, who she had helped through a very traumatic experience. A little over 14 months before the events of October 1970, which is the events of this case, this particular neighbour, who we'll call Janice for the purpose of protecting her identity, had been through an extremely traumatic experience. Janice, who had been home alone, had been minding her own business doing her chores when a man broke into her home and attempted to rob the house. This man, later identified to have been John L. Arbon, proceeded to rape Janice and after doing so, decided that he wanted to kill her. He tied her up as she was still nude to a chair before dumping gasoline onto her with the intention of burning her alive. Now, in a sick twist of fortune, 
Janice's attacker John had failed to bring any matches or lighters with him and had been unable to find any in the kitchen so that he could, quote, finish the job. And so John left Janice in the chair to go and try to find something to start the fire with, which ultimately gave her enough time to escape and run to a neighbor's house, still in the nude, for help. John would eventually be caught, jailed, tried, and finally executed in the electric chair for what he did. Jean had provided comfort and support to Janice following the horrific crime that had occurred, which drew the two women closer as friends. The morning of the 28th of October 1970 had been nothing special, according to Jean's husband Grover. The kids had left for school as usual, and by 7.50am that morning, Grover's carpool had arrived to take him to work. Grover kissed his wife Jean goodbye and headed off to work in this carpool. Jean had made plans that day for lunch with her neighbour and close friend Janice, and she had arranged with Janice that she'd go pick her up later on that morning so they could go and get lunch. As Grover left, he noted nothing unusual about his wife Jean as she went about her morning routine and prepared for her lunch plans. Now at some time around 10.15am that morning, Jean's twin sister June rang her up to chat for a while. Jean would later state that this call only lasted around 15 minutes, and it appeared to her, over the phone at least, that Jean had either been busy or rushing at the time, which explains her the brevity of the phone call. Now at some point between the end of that phone call and 11.30am, two workmen who were employed on a nearby site came by the house to refill their water jugs. This was a regular occurrence which Jean was perfectly fine with, allowing the men to use their outside water hose to get themselves fresh water. The men noted though on this visit that a door that was typically open upstairs had actually been closed, the two men seeing the door through a window. The two men had a gut feeling that something wasn't quite right within the house as they left the property to return back to work. Now, interestingly, these two workmen would eventually return back to the family home after not being able to shake the feeling that something was wrong. They'd usually see Jean every morning when they popped over, but on that day, they didn't. Now, the time continued to creep on, and it wasn't long before Janice began to call the Hope family house phone she was confused as to where Jean exactly was. You see, Jean should have been around to her house to pick Janice up for lunch by that point, as they had arranged. And it wasn't like Jean to flake on prearranged plans. She was she was never that kind of person. But on this day, on this morning, Jean was nowhere to be seen. After two or three calls failed to receive an answer, Janice grew very worried for her friend. Janice's traumatic ordeal 14 months prior had caused her to become hyper-aware of when things felt wrong to her, and so she became very scared for Jean, hoping that nothing bad had happened to her. This paranoia and sense of intuition led her to call Jean's husband Grover's work, desperate to get a hold of him to tell them that she hadn't been able to make contact with Jean on the phone. After speaking with Grover, he too became very worried. He informed his business partner that he was going to quickly run back home to check on his wife, before borrowing a vehicle to drive home, as the family car that Jean mostly used had still been at the home in the garage for her to use during the day, so he didn't have his own vehicle. When Grover arrived at the house, he immediately noticed that the family car had still been parked in the garage. This immediately confirmed to Grover that Jean hadn't left the house as she had planned to that morning, at least, she hadn't left in the car, as she always did. Unease twisted in his guts as he entered the quiet family home. Grover called out to his wife, Jean, but he got no response. 
He felt deep down that something had been very wrong, that the house wasn't safe. And so Grover reached for the first makeshift weapon that he could find, a piece of firewood leaning against the fireplace in the living room. He made his way slowly through the house, calling out to his wife, Jean, desperate to find her. As he approached the master bedroom, he noticed that the door had been open, and glancing through it, he could see that two of Jean's handbags had been opened with their contents poured out onto the bed. Now this surprisingly actually calms Crover down a bit as he knew that Jean had a habit of dumping out the contents of her bags onto the bed when she wanted to switch purses. So it wasn't something out of the ordinary and it just implied to Grover that his wife, you know, was going about her morning routine and her preparations for lunch. He continued to search through the room but couldn't find Jean anywhere. Grover kept searching throughout the house until he approached the door of one of his son's bedrooms. The door had been closed, something that was very out of the ordinary during the day in their house. Grover would later state that, quote, a chill went up his spine in that moment because he knew there and then that behind that door was a nightmare waiting to rear its gruesome head. He slowly approached the door, knowing somehow deep down that his life was about to change forever and pushed it open to reveal the horror behind it. Jean had been on the ground of her son's bedroom in a pool of blood, with her dress pushed up past her waist. Her head had been bludgeoned to such a degree that she had been made entirely unrecognisable, even to her husband, Grover, who later said, quote, You didn't have to wonder if she was dead or not. She was definitely dead. Grover dropped the firewood he'd been holding and ran out of the room towards the phone in the kitchen. Grover first called his business partner to update him on the discovery and to tell him that he wouldn't be coming back in, and then he called for the police. Now, this bit isn't really mentioned again in this coverage, but I just wanted to quickly interject here that shock affects everyone differently, and him calling his business partner first to let him know is one of the strange things that your body or your brain will do to you when you're in shock. You just try and do the most normal thing before you, it snaps what's going on and you fight for the emergency services. There have been a few cases that I have looked into in which this kind of thing has happened, and particularly one case where the woman came home to found her husband had been murdered and she did the dishes before realizing what had actually happened and phoning the police. So. This isn't something that really sticks out as too suspicious to me at all, uh, but I thought I would just point that out for you guys. Grover had placed the 911 call to emergency services at two minutes past midday that day to report what happened to his wife, and it was mere minutes before first responders arrived on the scene. Jean was officially pronounced dead on the scene. The investigation then launched into the murder of Beverly Jean Hope. The police combed through the house looking for any evidence and noticed that a few things had been out of the ordinary. Firstly, there had been a blood splatter on the wall next to where a phone had been mounted on the wall in the bedroom that Jean's body had been found in. Secondly, Jean's undergarments were found in the hallway outside of the bedroom that her body was found in. And thirdly, two bloody footprints were found tracking out of the bedroom one of which had been noted as being 11 and a half inches long, with the other being noted as quite smaller than the first. Despite this size difference in the prints, the police would eventually state publicly that they felt only one person had been involved in the murder, putting down one of the bloody footprint sets to have been from Grover. 
quick side note about the undergarments. It doesn't really come up again why Grover didn't see these undergarments in the corridor uh, when he was walking around the house. Uh, but he may have seen them, he may not have seen them, it, it wasn't clear within our research. Now, falsely and most shockingly, the police took notice of the piece of firewood that Grover had carried with him for protection in his home. The piece of firewood was a mess. Blood, hair, and small fragments of skull were caked onto the end of the log. It was immediately obvious that the very same piece of firewood that Grover had hoped would protect him if worse came to worst was very likely to have been the very same object that had been used to kill the wife that he loved and cherished for the past 17 years. There was no sign of forced entry at either the front or back doors of the property, leading the investigators to assume that the perpetrator had been let in by Jean willingly or that she'd been forced to let the perpetrator in, in a way that had left no trace. Also of note had been the state of the phone located in the back of her son's bedroom, which was the room where Jean was found. The phone itself had been pulled off the wall entirely, and the receiver had been off the hook. As mentioned earlier, there was a blood splatter on the wall by this phone, with more blood in that area of the room, alongside blood by the door of the bedroom. Whether this phone was used during the attack or before the attack or even after the attack by the perpetrator or by Jean herself, it's, it's unclear, but the blood evidence suggests that at some point it was disturbed, potentially during the attack, it may have been bumped into or something like that, uh, but it's, again, it's unclear. Jean's body was removed from the family home and taken to undergo an autopsy. The medical examiner who conducted this autopsy determined that Jean had already been dead for an hour or so by the time her husband Grover had arrived at the home. The Dallas County Medical Examiner's main focus was the seemingly endless wounds that Jean had sustained to her head and determining what could have been used to inflict such extreme damage. We know from the police's investigation that this piece of firewood was highly likely to have been the murder weapon, but the medical examiner had to prove that it was the murder weapon, if that makes sense. They can't just go on that assumption. The medical examiner had to find evidence in the autopsy that this was the weapon that was used because because it might not have been the murder weapon they just have to prove this but as you can imagine this task of determining this murder weapon was not too difficult of a challenge due to the mess of evidence plastered to the end of the firewood found in the house bits of wood recovered from the remains it was officially determined that the piece of firewood had in fact been the object used to bludgeon Jean to death they further determined that she had been hit around 29 to 30 30 times with the log, an intense display of overkill. Jean's arms had also been covered in various cuts, scrapes, and bruises that showed an attempt to defend herself from her attacker. The defensive wounds were also linked to the firewood, as the medical examiner determined it to have been the most likely source of the injuries sustained. It only makes sense that she would have tried to shield her head with her arms, which had been consistent with the injuries she'd received to her arms. Her hands and all of her fingers had sustained fractures, once again highlighting the aggressive battle for life that she'd engaged with her attacker. Skin cells were found under her fingernails. However, it was never officially investigated. The original autopsy report showed evidence that the skin under her nails had been from her, from herself, but that was never fully tested. So it's hard to say for sure whether those skin cells were in fact from herself, which would be really weird. She would have to have been scratching herself to have got those skin cells under her fingernails, because such a deposit of skin cells come from a scratch. You'd usually expect to see the 
skin cells of the attacker underneath a victim's fingernails rather than their own. So that kind of stood out to me. But nevertheless, let's go, let's move on. The topic of sexual assaults and more specifically rape was a bit more difficult for the medical examiner to establish within Jean's case. As we discussed earlier, her undergarments had been found removed from her body and in the hallway outside the bedroom, and her dress had been bunched up around her waist when she was found. However, the medical examiner quickly labeled this case as one that had not involved rape. Despite this labelling by the medical examiner, this did not entirely dismiss the theory that sexual assault had occurred. Whatever the case, the state testing did not exclude rape from the long list of possibilities, though it didn't support it either. Several experts were actually called in and several different testing methods were employed, but none could unanimously and concretely determine whether or not Jean had been raped prior or following her death. The two main investigators assigned to Jean's case had been Charles Doherty and Gus T. Rose, both of whom had been notable as detectives in the city of Dallas for their work, with some places even citing them as being actively involved in the investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy a few years earlier, though, though we haven't taken the time to verify this claim, so take that with a uh, grain of salt there. So the predominant focus for the investigation for quite a while had been the piece of firewood that had been used to kill Jean. When this piece of firewood had been examined, it was found to have been impossible to retrieve any fingerprints from. The detectives were immediately curious as to how Grover had noticed the blood and hair present on the piece of firewood when he had picked it up as a makeshift weapon in the moments prior to him finding his wife's body. Grover described the firewood to them in an interview as, quote, dark, heavy bark. When he was asked as to why he hadn't noticed the blood on it, he claimed that the fact that it had been dark hid the blood, and the fear he had in the moment caused him not to notice it. The rough texture of the firewood meant that lifting fingerprints just wasn't doable, and even if it had been something within the range of possibility, the likelihood of the prints being complete enough to have been usable would have been extremely unlikely. DNA testing and other forensic science techniques that you would commonly see employed today were either too far in the infancy or not yet in existence had been employed by the police at that point in 1970, so that ruled out any and all biological evidence that could have been recovered. A few days after being allowed back into the family home, Grover contacted the police with the information that he had noticed several valuables around the house to have been missing. For obvious reasons, mainly due to the house being closed off as a crime scene, it had taken Grover some time to notice, but he did provide the police with a full itemized list of all the things that were missing. This list was Jean's engagement ring, Jean's wedding band, a topaz ring, a wide gold ornamental band ring, a large peridot ring, a fire opal ring, a filigree dome yellow hold ring, a yellow gold bracelet with ornamental engraving, a 14 carat yellow gold omega watch, a small round gold watch, a Konica auto reflex camera model, and an Argus C3 camera. This list was shared in various newspapers, such as the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, pictured on screen now. Grover initially offered a $5,000 reward, which is about $36,000, or just under 30,000 Great British Pounds, in today's money, for the returned items, and an additional $10,000 if the returned items help to find Jean's killer. After some time and stagnation, this reward total increased to $25,000, which is just over $180,000, or about 146,000 Great British Pounds in today's money, so a substantial amount of money. 
Now, in the years following the murder, Grover would tell others that he had been willing to offer up more money, but the police had suggested against it in an attempt to minimise the amount of false leads that would be called in due to such a large amount of reward money. In interviews as recent as 2015, Grover would reaffirm that he'd wished he'd offered more reward money. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at It's important to take a look at a few of the leads that popped up at the time of the original investigation, which were only briefly pursued. A white 61 Chevy truck had been seen parked along the road near the Hope family home at around the same time of Jean's murder. Investigators had felt that the car was likely the getaway vehicle of whoever had killed Jean, but nothing more came from their inquiries into this lead. Sketch artists were brought in and paid to aid in the investigation, instructed to go around the neighborhood to speak with anyone who said they'd seen someone they didn't recognize in the area. These sketches, though, did not lead to any arrests. One of the leads investigated in the months following Jean's murder had been that a local burglar by the name of Old Bo possibly had something to do with the case. Old Bo had been arrested for various burglary and theft-related crimes in the past, and immediately came to mind for the investigators when Grover had reported that various valuable items had been stolen. Allegedly, in the past, Old Bo had been involved in a few robberies in which the victims didn't realize that their possessions had been missing, until several days, even several weeks in some cases, had gone by. Old Bo had managed to evade the police for a short time before being eventually captured. When Detective Dorothy spoke to Old Bo following his arrest, Dorothy said, quote, We got you on a real bad burglary in North Dallas. To which Old Bo immediately responded with, quote, I didn't kill that woman. Naturally, the investigators found his immediate acknowledgement of Jean's case to have been suspicious. Old Bo was pressed for further information, and eventually he gave the investigators the name of someone who he claimed to have been responsible for Jean's murder. It's important to note that this name isn't mentioned anywhere, but as the investigators would quickly come to learn, it wouldn't have been relevant regardless. When the detectives followed up on the lead, it turned out to be a dead end, as the person named had been a hundred or more miles away from Dallas on the day that Jean was killed. Following this, the police decided to bring old Bo back in to undergo three polygraph examinations. I needn't say more regarding the validity of polygraph examinations, as long-time viewers will know my strong opinions and stance on them, but I will just say that they're inadmissible in the court of law for a reason. They are an intimidation tactic during interrogations. They prove nothing. If they could actually prove innocence or guilt, whether someone's lying, they would be used in all walks of life and would negate the need for an actual trial. But that's besides the point. Before the third and final polygraph test, Old Bo attempted to escape the interrogation room. While he'd been alone in the room, he'd taken a spring from the bottom of one of the office chairs and had tried to pick the lock on the door. He'd been quickly stopped and made to go through the polygraph test regardless. The investigators used this escape attempt as a measure to determine whether Old Bo was lying or not. An investigator started the test and asked him, quote, Did you just try to escape the interrogation room? 
this question was being used as a baseline. They knew for a fact that he had indeed tried to pick the lock and leave, meaning that they should be able to use whatever reading this question gave as a comparison for a true and known answer. Oldbo responded simply, no. The polygraph machine revealed to the detectives that he had been telling the truth, despite the obvious lie. This is what I mean when I talk about polygraph examinations. This is one of many cases where it's just, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not true. It's not real. Anyway, the, the old bow lead quickly grew stagnant following this result, and it was kind of dropped. Another lead that the investigators followed up on was about a man that the police referred to as a junkie, who was actually just called Lenny. Lenny had been arrested for burglary in Dallas before. However, with Lenny, there had been an added interest. In one robbery, a woman had walked in on him during the crime, and this had seen him chase her into the streets. Though he'd not physically attacked her, the police still considered him for a brief time to have been involved in Jean's case. This lead, as the lead before, died out quickly. The neatness of the robbery didn't match Lenny's typical, quote, ransacking robbery style, nor did he have a history of violence. Many others, around a hundred or so, were interviewed and considered by the investigators, though none of them were ever pursued seriously as being responsible. After just one year had passed since Jean's murder, the case had begun to fall cold. Even though the investigators had put in what equated to three years of work total into the case, there just hadn't been enough solid evidence to properly go off on. However, there were several theories that those who knew the case, and even some of the investigators, found interesting or compelling. I have to reiterate now that these are theories and are not facts and shouldn't be taken as such. These theories also do not necessarily represent my own views, my team's views, the investigators' views, or the views of anyone connected to this case, so keep that in mind. There has always been a chance that this case was an act committed by a random person unrelated to Jean or her loved ones. The area had already been hit by a random robbery and sexual assault case in the year and a half prior, the attack on Jean's neighbour and close friend Janice, so this isn't something outside of the realm of possibilities. The family had been building a second house at the time of the murder, with one of the sources stating, quote, they were building a new house in a nicer, safer subdivision. This implied the fact that though the neighbourhood they had lived in wasn't terrible, the family knew that it wasn't the safest or nicest area to be in. Due to a lack of evidence or even a circumstantial motive from any other leads, this theory can't be disproven unless someone comes forward with further information. The one question regarding this quote random acts theory was that the motives are strange and flawed. If this was supposed to have been a standard robbery, why would they try to rob a house that clearly had a car parked invisibly in the garage? Why would the killer bludgeon Jean 29 or 30 times far beyond what is necessary to fatally injure someone? The method of murder could easily be argued to demonstrate a crime with heavy emotion surrounding it. It would have taken substantial strength and time to repeatedly bludgeon someone to death in that fashion. If the intention had been to kill someone, why did they use the firewood log as the murder weapon? Somebody who had been entering a house with the intention to murder would be highly likely to have brought their own actual weapon with them, but that was not the case. One theory mentions the possibility of the murder being a hired hit, but again, this would have been extremely inconsistent with a hired hit due to the method of Jean's death. 
A hired hitman wouldn't kill someone with a log in the manner that had taken place. Overall, there are several major inconsistencies with the random acts of violence theory. Another theory in this case was actually mentioned by Grover in an interview. He suggested that for a time, he believed the attacks had been carried out by somebody who had known John L. Arbon, who was the perpetrator of the rape and attempted murder of Jean's close friend and neighbor, Janice. This theory stemmed from the facts that when the neighbor's court case against John Arbon was underway, Jean had been present at the courthouse like clockwork. Grover claims that she would go to each session and quote, stare daggers at the other people across the room. He felt that it was possible that one of the people who came to view the hearings as friends or family of Arbon could have been angry that Jean kept looking at them with this quote, nasty look. It must be noted that this had taken place in Dallas, Texas in the 70s and that the attitude towards African-American citizens was bad to say the least, with normalized racism quite literally written into the laws of the states. A brief example of this was that each newspaper covering Janice's case mentioned the race of John Arbron, with one newspaper even using a racist slur when describing him. This isn't to imply that racism was rooted in Grover's theory, but it can't further be excluded. The next theory in this case was that Jean had been attacked by somebody that she knew. There are a few pieces of information that lead many people to believe that Jean had been killed by someone that she had known personally. First of all, this is a heartbreakingly common occurrence in the statistics regarding murder, especially in cases where the victim had been a woman. In 2019, Sky News ran an article regarding murder statistics in England and Wales for 2018. This article revealed that 89% of the women murdered were killed by somebody that they knew, and 77% were killed in their own home. Between 2013 and 2018, 40% of women killed were killed by a current or ex-partner. These statistics, while being more recent, show that many women who are the victim of murder are not typically killed by strangers. This safe to suggest the theory that Jean had been one of the women that fit into the quote, killed by somebody she knew statistic. The only thing it comes down to, if this theory is to believe, is the motive. As we discussed a few moments ago, this guy news article details that 40% of women in a five-year period had been killed by their partner or ex-partner. There are definitely people who believe that Grover Hope had been the one to have killed his wife, and I'm sure a few of you watching have been wondering of his involvement too. So let's take a closer look at this theory. First, we need to establish if motive or motives had existed for Grover to have murdered his wife. One of the predominant motives for murder is typically money-based. Though the Hope family had been doing well financially, there had been one fact that had stuck out to some of those interested in Jean's case, a change in the life insurance policy about a week before Jean would be murdered. This legal document details that on the 5th of May 1970, around six months prior to Jean's murder, three applications for, quote, term life insurance policies had been filled out. The exact paragraphs discussing this are as follows, and they're a little bit complicated, they've got a little bit of legal jargon in, but stick with me. On May 5th, 1970, the decadents executed three applications for term life insurances as proposed insured, and on August 7th, Whitmarsh was designated the proposed owner of the policies. It is a fair inference that Hope contemplated a continuing practice of annually purchasing such policies for the trusts. The insurance company accepted the applications on October 9th, 1970, subject to the payment of a $713 premium on each policy. On October 21st, Grover Hope withdrew $2,100 from the Hope's joint checking account 
and deposited $700 in each of the three trust accounts. The next day, Whitmarsh, a trustee, paid the premiums. Shortly thereafter, Southwestern Life Insurance Company issued three separate $100,000 renewable term life insurance policies on the decadent's life. The decadent being Jean. On October 28, 1970, so the next week following this insurance being accepted and being paid for, Beverly Jean Hope was murdered in her home. 36 years old and in excellent health, she had no reason to believe that death was imminent. Upon her death, the trustee collected $300,000 as the proceeds of the insurance policies. The proceeds were not included in the gross estate of the decadence federal estate tax return. The commissioner, seeking to include $150,000 as the decadence community share, asserted a deficiency. The estate paid $67,638.27 in tax and then sued for a refund. In granting the refund, the district court found that the transaction was in substance a transfer, but that it was life-motivated and consequently not in contemplation of death. To sum that all up, the court didn't find it suspicious. In many cases in which spouses are found deceased, murder for life insurance funds as a motive is not uncommon. Another quote from Grover directly also added further fuel to the fire of this theory. In a 2015 D Magazine article, it stated that, quote, Grover suggests calling the attorney who helped set up the policies, and he offers to dig up old financial records that prove the money went straight to the children. Quote, Each of them are multimillionaires now, Grover says, and that's what started it. The article goes on to state that in interviews, Grover seemed sincere that he had no interest in the money, and that his company at that time was doing so well that he wasn't sure how anyone would think he'd need the life insurance money. Ironically, the legal document that had led some people to believe that the life insurance policies had been an omen that Grover was after the insurance money had been the exact same document that Grover had been referencing in that quote. The document does indeed show that the money from Jean's policies did go to her children and not her husband Grover. The theory of a financially driven motive doesn't hold as much as many believe once you read the legal document in its entirety. In fact, after reading the document, it's probably safe to assume that it couldn't have been the motive at all. This document, paired with the knowledge that Grover's company had been financially very successful, effectively rules this money motive out. Another motive discussed was the possibility that Grover might have been having an affair at the time that his wife Jean had been murdered, though it must be noted that there was no evidence to support this claim and it appears to simply be a what-if theory, as it is a common motive within other cases. Another motive that surfaced when discussing the theory that Grover had been the killer had been in regards to their children. Though Jean and Grover had three kids, there are people who knew them who claims that Grover, who himself had come from a large family, had wanted more kids. Throughout their 17 years of marriage, Jean and Grover had lost two children, one before the three children they had together and one after the loss of their surviving children had been born. After the loss of their second child, Jean decided that she did not want to, tr to have or try for any more children. However, family and friends of Grover claims that he hadn't been upset by this, respecting her choice and moving on from it. So, Again, with this potential motive, there was no real evidence other than rumours. Grover seemed to have been sincere on all accounts, and said to D Magazine in the same article previously referenced that, quote, In all, Grover participates in two long interviews, both of which go into painful detail. He seems honest and sincere. At some point, though, he decides he doesn't want to discuss the topic anymore. Quote, Too many people could get hurt, he says. I just wish everyone would drop it. If he could go the rest of his life without ever thinking about this again, he says he would. 
It's too late to do any good, Grover says. I don't want any more calls. Even if motive had existed, Grover had a solid alibi at the time of Jean's murder, with numerous witnesses at his place of work. He simply couldn't have been at the family home at the time of the murder. The inclusion of Everett Pointer in this case is a bit on the strange side, so stick with me for this one. The younger sister of Everett Pointer, a woman called Angela Hans, had been having lunch with Everett's ex-wife in 1978. Now, Everett's ex-wife happened to have been June Drannan, who was, as we know, Jean's twin sister, and who he'd married in the 50s and had a child with. Angela had been close with her since Everett and June had divorced, as both Angela and June had bad experiences with Everett, who was described as having been troubled his whole life. June mentioned to Angela over lunch one day that her sister Jean had been murdered at around the same time as Jean having taken Everett to court over child support, and so she gave a copy of a magazine article about it to Angela. Angela went home and read the article after lunch, and she was shocked. She immediately felt that her brother Everett could have been the one that had killed Beverly Jean Hope. In 1970, Everett had been living in Oklahoma with his second wife and had been trying to start up a small business that, quote, used small airplanes and infrared cameras to search for oil and gas deposits. It was at this time that June had decided to go to court and sue him for the 18 years of child support that she was owed from him. Angela explained that she had remembered her brother being outraged by this, furious that June had showed back up in his life, quote, demanding his money. Angela went on to theorize that Everett wanted revenge, but that it would be far too obvious if he had killed June. She speculated that Everett had killed Jean instead, hoping that it would hurt June badly enough that he'd feel better and that he'd, in a way, have punished June by murdering her twin sister Jean. She explained that he'd have access to a plane and therefore would be able to get from Oklahoma to Dallas quickly if he wanted or needed to. Another theory of Angela's was that Everett had been in desperate need of money due to this lawsuit and his new business and knew that Jean and Grover had a good amount of money to spare. She felt that it could be possible that Everett had gone to visit Grover and Jean, hoping that they were willing to loan or give him money to try to balance out all of his expenses. The theory goes on to state that he had showed up at their house not knowing that Grover had been out at work and so had been let in by Jean. Jean had known Everett due to his marriage to June, so it wouldn't, wouldn't have been too far of a stretch that she'd let him in, in Angela's opinion. She believed that seeing someone who looked so much like June could have set him off into a rage leading to Jean's murder. Or perhaps Jean refused his request for money, which saw him attack her in anger. Angela finished her theories off by mentioning that during the time of the lawsuits, that Everett had been driving an old white Chevy, like the one that had been seen on the street at the time of Jean's murder. Though in the South, seeing an old white Chevy was pretty much the same as seeing a cloud in the sky. Angela cited that Everett had a history of violence and sexual violence, dating all the way back to when they were children. She mentioned that she had been molested as a child by Everett, and because of this history, she didn't doubt that he had been capable of killing somebody. Angela brought her theory to Grover and then to D Magazine, but never took it to the police. When asked about her theories, Grover said, quote, She doesn't have anything that substantiates this, Grover says. She's troubled. It sounds like she had a troubled relationship with her brother, and she wants to punish him, but... She can't punish him, so she's trying to punish his memory. Grover had met Everett a few times while they were both married to the twins. Everett Pointer was a terrible person, he says. There's no doubt about that. He treated June terrible. I don't blame her for being mad at him, but unless you've got something that can lead to someone being put away, I don't want to be put through it. 
Everett and June have both since passed away, with June sadly passing away in 2010 and Everett dying in 2012. All that really remain in regards to Jean's death are these few theories that we've discussed. Many factors sadly led to Jean's murder case going cold. The lack of suspects and witnesses was more than enough reason for the investigation to eventually cool off, but the most damaging factor had been the lack of forensic evidence. DNA evidence wouldn't be used until the late 80s, and the limited forms of that research that existed at that time could only estimate race, poorly and give a blood type. Fingerprints and footprints have been the main type of evidence that we would recognize as regular forensic evidence today that had been used at the time, but no solid leads had come from that in this case. If DNA analysis and other forensic methods like the ones we utilize today had existed in that time period, I firmly believe that Jean's murderer would have been caught. It's absolutely heartbreaking that to this day, so little is known about what happened to Jean that morning. Several little things added up and look strange in the theories of Grover and Everett, but I don't think either of them are behind it. Grover's alibi was too strong, and though the life insurance policy had some pretty suspicious timings, I, I just don't think that Grover would go as far as to kill someone, especially his wife, for more money. His business was very successful, so much so that he'd been bringing in enough to build them a second custom home in a new area, as well as purchase another house in another city. The likelihood of him killing for cash seems slim to none. In the same article that uh, we referenced earlier, the article states, She, Jean, had a spacious house on the edge of Addison. They had a summer home in Colorado, a European vacation in the works, and they were building a new house in a nicer, safer subdivision. As for the Everett theory, sure, it was erratic and was linked to the family, but I just don't personally believe that there had been enough connecting him to the murder. I don't see why he would go after Jean when the problems he was going through were to do with June. To me, it just doesn't add up in the same way that Angela made it seem like it did. There was no hard evidence to prove that he had been there that day. Further, I don't believe Jean would have let Everett into her house so easily, especially considering she'd just gone off the phone with her twin sister June, who had been in the middle of suing him for her rightful child support money. I just don't see her being friendly enough towards him to invite him into her home, especially as she'd been home alone, and especially as she had plans that morning to meet up with Janice for lunch. Everett's need for money can fit into the evidence, after all, a collection of valuable jewellery was taken from the house, but I just find it hard to put the other pieces of the puzzle together, at least in my opinion. Whatever the case, we can only hope that this case is re-examined with modern techniques and justice is found for Beverly Jean Hope. Her twin sister June died without ever knowing the justice that she deserved. I hope that Jean's children have been able to move forward in their lives with their mother's memory close to hearts. And that's everything that I have for you in today's video. Let me know in the comment section down below what you thought of this case. Be sure to subscribe to this channel by hitting the button down below and tap that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.